we will take advantage of an innovation or let's say even a hack where our team has the understanding, has the know-how, will develop something really cool and unique. Everyone wants to keep their secret so kind of like, okay, it's our special hack or whatever and we don't want to share it. It doesn't hurt when you can share that message and get that reach out there. Hey, awesome people. Welcome to Bootstrap Stories, the only podcast where founders of bootstrap companies share in all transparency the ups and downs of their journey. Starting a business comes hand in hand with loneliness, the pressure of not being successful, and overall, lots of challenges. After meeting with hundreds of entrepreneurs in the past years, I figured out that we all have struggles and make lots of mistakes when building a business. But the truth is that most people are afraid to share this publicly. That's what motivated me to start this podcast, to show that we're all on the same journey, facing the same struggles, and to give energy to all entrepreneurs worldwide to continue their adventure. Even if sometimes it can be really challenging and we often feel like giving up, in the end, it's all worth it. My guest for this episode is Troy Johnson, co-founder and CEO of Seller Tools. Hey, Troy, it's a pleasure to have you on the Bootstrap Stories podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, accepting the invite. Before jumping into our discussion, I just want to give a short idea about how we're going to discuss and what we're going to discuss next. So in the first part of the episode, I really want to focus on the strategies that help you to grow to seven figures with uh, your SaaS and being fully bootstrap. Um, after that, you know, like I, I want to dig in into that, uh, that myth of overnight success. Uh, it takes a lot of work to get to where you've been. So I want to speak also about the, the challenges and hard times as a founder. And in the last part, uh, I really want to find out what uh, have been your learnings in the last uh, five years of uh, growing seller tools. Sounds good? Wonderful, yeah, sounds great. Awesome, so um, can you maybe tell me a little bit more about uh, seller tools, what pain does it solve and who is kind of like your ideal customer? Yeah, no, absolutely. So seller tools, we're an all-in-one suite of tools for Amazon FBA sellers and brands. So it covers a pretty wide array of solutions from keyword research to listing optimization to competitive analysis. Uh, but ultimately, what we strive to achieve as an outcome for our customers and users is getting more visible and generating more revenue on Amazon. And then our suite of tools and our Chrome extension, there's sort of two complementary uh, tools there that help to to achieve that outcome. Okay. And so if I'm trying to understand this correctly, you have several tools that you are selling. Is this part of a similar package or is it thing that people can purchase separately? Yeah, right now there is, it's sort of tiered price uh, uh, price and plans based on the level of access. So as an example, uh, for FBA brands, they'll manage uh, what is referred to as like seller central accounts. This is where they manage their FBA business and facilitate sending in inventory and uh, managing their listings. And so we will set a threshold where, let's say, you know, five seller central accounts will be on a certain tier plan and then we'll kind of graduate from there. Uh, with the aim and the strategy being kind of meeting, you know, meeting those brands where they're at in their business. Nice. So you started the business in uh, 2016, if I remember correctly. And uh, and now basically, like, uh, what's kind of your error range and, uh, and people, a uh, number of people in the team? Yeah, so um, it really... And, and we we don't really have, a I would say, a very hard start date for Cello Tools of like, this is the inception, because... A little background and story is uh, Solo Tools was started by uh, myself and my other two co-founders, 
Um, and really the, the initial tools that were coming together were built out uh, by my co-founder uh, and, and partner, uh, Brennan Morris, who was developing solutions for his own FBA branded business. He had a very small team, was looking for tools to automate some of the core and key functions. And so that was the, that was the starting place. And then um, our other business partner, Todd A, uh, joined him to start to add a little bit more stability, a little bit more sophistication, um, and the technical know-how to, um, to really start um, create that, creating that foundation. And so that was roughly in, in 2015, as a lot of this was taking place. And then um, I joined the the team as the kind of the final founder when it was the idea of, okay, now that some of these pieces are coming together, how do we think about um, impacting the, the larger community and clarifying the value prop and setting, setting more of a, a SaaS foundation? Um, and then, yeah, that was really when, when things started to kick off and, and formalize a little bit more. So it was this very fluid, um, what I, what I would say kind of scratching our own itch because all three of us were sellers ourselves. So we all had brands at this point in time or were in the process of having our brands acquired. And so fortunately, um, we had a lot of, uh, understanding of what was going to give us an advantage. What sort of unique data did we want to tap into? How did it, how did it empower some of our workflows? Um, but then we also, you know, we're also running those other businesses while we were building our building our SaaS and building uh, building solo tools. So, um, so yeah, that was sort of the the uh, fluid um, foundation and the true sort of inception really happened over that span of time. Um, and I'm sorry, what were, what were some of the other other questions? <laughs> so, so that, that that's really interesting. And I think like uh, starting, you know, with uh, with your own needs whenever you you want to launch a business is extremely helpful because. You're gonna eat your own dog food, as we said, and this is the best way to also understand what can uh, bring value to others. If you can bring yourself value, you you know that you will find other people in the same position. Um, so, the question I was asking was mainly about like a kind of a, a number perspective, like uh, how many people in the team right now, and what's kind of like the current annual recurring revenue. Yeah, so our team uh, our team is about twenty five. Um, which we are much more uh, heavily built out, I would say, on the the technical and the development side um, between engineers and QA and um, very robust built out and awesome awesome team that we've sort of eventually arrived at. That's definitely been also over time. And then we have a fairly blended uh, revenue model. Um, we have, you know, our current uh, our current AR includes um, includes the monthly subscriptions. We also have a digital wallet. Um, that we utilize. We also run uh, what's considered a launch service on Amazon. So it's very, um, it's very blended. Um, but we're we're in the 1.5 to 2 uh, ARR for uh, sort of the stable foundation, and that can fluctuate. So as an example, when there's um, a lot more seasonality with our wallet, where there's a lot more promotions and loyalty programs, we can run uh, you know half a million to a million dollars through that wallet, and then we realize incremental. Uh, revenue through fees for brands that use that service. So um, it's it's sort of bittersweet because it's it's semi predictable, um, but at the same time, because we can facilitate so much throughput, um, it's a really nice really nice value add um, as as part of our suite of tools. 
Yeah, definitely. I'm guessing it's a it's a cool boost to have. Like uh, whenever you have like uh, the the salary caps and everything, you can just check out how much you're you're spending and take consider that everything that comes on top of it is just the the extra boost that you're getting from uh, from extra revenue that you can charge. And um, what I'm curious also because you were mentioning early on that um, you know you built a tool for your own need, uh, and at the same time you were kind of like all having. Uh, business on Amazon's already, so you were all Amazon sellers. Um, what type of business was that? Did you like uh, kept the business while also building your own SaaS? How did the transition go um, in the early days? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, it's it's what I would also consider one of our competitive advantages, um, but it's not without its own own challenges too, because it's such a unique time to. Uh, own and run an Amazon FBA brand. Um, I'm sure if, if if you haven't seen um, what what is coming into the space right now is this influx of interest and capital uh, through these Amazon FBA ag aggregators. But the reason why they're coming into the space is because of the success and potential um, of these FBA brands. And so I, I do think that's been a big throughput and a big part of our our mission and vision is to be able to um, eat, eat our own dog food of, of hey, what, what is going to excite us? What's going to give us a clear advantage? And then that gives, uh, that also delivers unique value to, uh, to our, our users. And so that's really lent in, in a lot of cases when we look at our roadmap and our kind of our feature pipeline, it's led us in, in ways to where we have sort of pursued more of the blue ocean of what's unique, what can we sort of see that's out there that's missing, um, how can we have sort of a unique take? And, you know, for those that aren't familiar with, um, Amazon FBA, it's a very, it's a very, I don't want to say volatile, but it's probably a good way of capturing the space. Um, a good analogy, or it'd be kind of analogous to Facebook where, you know, you have privacy changes and, uh, Facebook ads, I should say more specifically yeah. where there is sudden shifts and then the market responds. And so um, Amazon FBA is very similar to that, where uh, there will be data accessible, then it will be inaccessible, then there'll be terms or uh, terms or policy changes. And so that is sort of the, um, I would say the bittersweet aspect of, you know, we, we will take advantage of an innovation or let's say even a hack where our team has the understanding, has the know-how, will develop something really cool and unique. And then six months later, Amazon will say, "Oh, by the way, this is uh, it this has is changed. now inaccessible, <laughs> and this has changed drastically." <laughs> so, you really have to have the 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 stomach for um, for creating and developing a solution in this space. But that also goes. This isn't this isn't unique necessarily. I would say to uh, to us as a SaaS, it's really the entirety of the FBA category, and it's sort mm -hmm. of a it's um it's just sort of a reality of it. I would say. Yeah, I feel like every time you're building a, a business on top of a platform, you 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 must face some risk. I mean, it's it's part of the deal. Like you're you're not in control of everything, but at the same time, it's also give you an edge because you also have like a specific community. It's more niche, so you know like uh, your audience and you know who you're targeting. Um, you you mentioned that uh, you were running your own kind of brand on Amazon before. Um, is this what helped you? I, I want to get, you know, into like the how to get started part because um, a lot of our listeners are just getting started and sometimes our question that we receive a lot is, uh, you know, like how do you get the money to get started? 
Um, and you were mentioning that you had your own uh, Amazon brand. Um, is it something you kept for a lot of time after you started Seller Tools? Or is it something that uh, you kind of stopped and decided to go all in because you had saved enough money for, I don't know, a year or, or somewhere around that to, to basically like uh, get enough money to get started? Yeah, no. I, so I started a brand um, uh, really, really along the, the same time that, that Brendan was sort of um, my, my business partner was developing what was the very rough but personal use tools that became seller tools uh, was the time I started my um, Amazon brand, which was in the health and beauty space, which um, is a very, very competitive uh, category and especially was around that around that time, um, which served me, definitely served me well because it required me to accelerate my knowledge and sort of advance my skills to be able to kind of cut through in a very saturated, very competitive um, and very malicious. Again, I'm bringing up this thread of kind of the the FBA nuances, but um, it's a you know Amazon is a compare and contrast marketplace. You know, you type in a keyword, a phrase, you're you're very rarely the only option that's visible. You have to sort of cut through and and uh, and win in the in the it's in a so category. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so you know that that was that was a, a great way to um, to accelerate my my knowledge. And I ended up, so I built that brand, um, up to about 27 SKUs before I sold it, uh, about, uh, just over two and a half years in and, um, which was great for me to then commit more of my focus to, uh, to solo tools at that point, I had sold that brand, moved on to doing some, some amount of consulting and advising, uh, for about eight months. And then, uh, jumped fully into solo tools. Cause I was seeing what was kind of what was coming together, um, in terms of the, uh, the initial, uh, the data that we were working at, especially at that point in time, this is where if we look back five or six years, uh, cellular tools has taken on a lot of different forms where in those early days, we were very much data focused. And then we moved on more to, uh, more launching ranking and review strategies. And now by virtue of time development and focus, you know, we've, we've created this, this all in one suite, but, um, but yeah, that was that was sort of the inception. And I should note, around that time, uh, both Tade and Brandon were also running running their own brands. So this is where, again, for founder focus, we had to definitely manage. Like, hey, you know, he's he's running an eight figure brand. I'm going through my seven figure. Like, we're 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 going through in many cases our first, you know, legitimate um, robust brands, and also then thinking about exit strategy while also building this this uh, SaaS solution um, and effectively managing all that activity. Yeah, that's, that's, that sounds really intense. So did you all exited your, uh, your business or uh, did they kept also like the, the brands they were building? Yeah, so um, over that course of time, Brendan uh, sold what was his flagship, flagship brand, uh, which was in the supplements category, very similar to health and beauty. So again, we, we both had very competitive markets, yeah. 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 Very time and cost intensive. And so he realized his exit, which was a, a very sizable exit, which was great. Um, and then ended up uh, also starting another brand with his, uh, his part, who, who was his partner on the supplements brand um, and in the fit, fitness category. So he's just a, he was just a, uh, he had a penchant for pain. Cause that's another one that's just <laughs> super, super tough. Um, but um but yeah, and then uh, Tade is still actually running the brand that he had started 
uh, from those early days. So that's, that is a constant thread of sort of FBA. I'm, I'm, I had enough, um, I, I had enough pain. So I, I stepped away from active brand management after I sold my, my health and beauty brand. So, so that's something I'm, I'm actually curious. Like there, there are two things I'm curious about, actually three things. The first thing is whenever you build a brand, you mentioned like uh, 27,000 SKUs. So SKUs, it's like what the, the number of products or, uh, or reference or how, how exactly would you explain it? Yeah. Yeah. It, it was a uh, 27 SKUs total that uh, I had. 27. That okay. Okay. Okay, and uh, and basically, like, uh, how how much do you exit a brand on Amazon? Is it like a, a multiple from uh, the EBITDA or uh, the the revenue? How exactly does it calculate? Yeah, typically it'll be uh, three to five x is kind of the 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 rule of thumb for um, an EBITDA multiple. Okay. At that point in time, there wasn't as many acquisitions taking place. Now it's a definitely a different landscape with the aggregators and interests. Um, where uh, right now, with you know supply chain issues and raw material shortages, running a physical product business and FBA uh, business, if you're doing really well um, and you can sort of um, you can thrive even in the midst of that circumstance, you can you can tend to look at a, a far more far more competitive multiple. And uh, what the, the other question I had is, um, you know, you, you mentioned that Zeus businesses, both you and your partners were running, were actually like uh, really successful, seven and eight figure. I think it's quite a lot. So um, you were also using seller tools at the time for your own other businesses. Um, something that's really important, you know, when you get started with uh, your SaaS company is to try to get as much testimonials or use cases for your own website so people can actually picture the success or the kind of success they can have. Was it something you implemented where you used your own brands as kind of like official customers of seller tools and write use case around it? Or uh, did you just say, okay, now we have enough other customers we can focus on and we're going to go with them? Yeah, we probably we probably could have done a better job of that. Honestly, um, we do, <laughs> do still use some of our brands to mention today because I mean it's it's a great example of um, you know one of our one of the eight figure brands that one of our team members run. We love to highlight their brand because hey, if they're you know using seller tools to manage their keywords to find you know optimization potential, they're still using our suite of tools. Hey, that's a great way to say you know this this brand leverages our capabilities and here's here's some of the results. So in the early days, we probably could have done a, could have done a better job of turning that around more case studies and testimonials. Um, but it's, it's really tricky. This community, it's, it's unique in the sense that, um, sometimes there's not an openness to share what works. It's, it mm. can sometimes be a little bit of, um, everyone wants to keep their secret sauce and, uh, kind of like, okay, it's uh, it's our special hack or whatever. And we don't want to share it. Exactly. Yeah, there is there is a, a lack of openness, which is really unfortunate. I used to surprise people when we go to events and you know, masterminds and that kind of thing. And I would lead with it. I would just this is my, you know, this is my brand. This is what I sell. And, you know, there, there may have been things that worked against me, but there's also there was also really big business opportunities that showed up because people said, oh, well, you run this brand like you, you probably know what you're doing. And um it actually led to more opportunities. So it's, it's, I guess, just one of those. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally uh, with you on that. Like, uh, I think transparency builds uh, a lot of trust with the people you meet. So obviously, like some people will try to take advantage, but I still do believe that it's a smallest percentage and that people are 
are quite happy, you know, when uh, you see that you are sharing something in being fully transparent, showing the flows, so showing the the things that are uh, that are also awesome. And I think like uh, this is also why I'm starting this podcast, you know, like to to kind of share all these uh, these moments. Um, I I I also like uh, question myself when you started to say that you decided to sell the business, but another of your partner kept it. Um, for us, I remember then. And we had this uh, this discussion with uh, with my co-founders actually like uh, okay whenever uh, can we actually start something on the side uh, how exactly do we want to be involved in the business etc and we decided that you know we we had to be all in all together no nothing on the side or that if we do something on the side it's actually part of the company and the money goes into the company what's your uh, has it been difficult for you guys like to uh, to manage because we obviously know that if you're running a SaaS business and on top of it you're also running an, um, an Amazon brand, your your time is gonna be split. You know, it's it's not something you can fully automate or whatever. So you're gonna be less involved, meaning that your shares might be impacted, etc. Like, how did you deal with that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think in hindsight, um, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I would definitely say it is. It would have served us better to um, isolate more of our focus and really drill down on uh, what we were building with Solo Tools. Um, you know, looking at both the competitive landscape, the, the larger opportunity, um, there was there was so much potential, kind of built up potential, as this uh, as this space, Amazon FBA, all all of the um, all of the pieces that came together for what is now of massively thriving niche and community. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, that's a, a very, uh, very big lesson learned, but I think the, the unique aspect for, um, me and our, just our leadership team is that, you know, we're developing tools that help you automate an FBA business. We're running FBA businesses, and then we have a SaaS tool. And so, we sort of have this weird interplay of like our tools help us save time, but then when you run a business, and I, I mean you know this, there's the there's the mental, there's the physical, there's there's everything that you put into it that it's hard to sort of decouple. Um, and so I think that's something that's that for first-time founders or or founders to be thinking about um, what that what that commitment level and some of those hard decisions and hard discussions have to look like. Cause I, I, I do think that's true for us is that we still took advantage of other opportunities, but, um, and who knows, who knows what that would have looked like if we, if we would have all just realized act like had a, just a clear path and a single focus, uh, where we would be. I mean, obviously we're still, still doing, doing great now and are really happy with, um, the solutions that we provide. Uh, but I think your, your point is very valid of what, what, potentially, um, if viewing things honestly, what, what could be possible with a more singular focus, or I even like that idea of maybe like, if you have other things going on, if, if you're going to be part of this bigger, larger initiative that includes multiple parties, what you're working on may fold back in, whether it's the return, um, whether it's shares and equity, you know, kind of looking at that, um, more clearly. Yeah, I, I think to be honest, like uh, that would be really tough for me to go to uh, and and work with uh, or be like in a in a partnership with people who are 
running other businesses. I mean, if it's clear from the start, I think it makes sense. But um, to give you an example, um, I think we were close to 10 million in ARR with Lemlist when I started like uh, running masterclasses. So the masterclasses are saying that I created myself, it's only content, and I sell it through webinars. The In the first webinar we launched, I think we made like uh, 100K or something. And, you know, like... Uh, the question of where does the money go? You know, it's like uh, I created it, I I built it. It's like the audience I have, etc. But for me, actually, I I even didn't ask myself this question. It's it was for the company, so my two co-founders will also receive like this money would be on the bank account. It's not something that I'm gonna get personally because I'm feeling that my involvement is just with our company and whatever we're doing on the side, it should also go all in because we're being fully focused on our overall growth and it's part of a bigger plan. And I think that um, uh, the slippery slope could be that, you know, if you feel that someone is not as invested as before, you kind of get a lack of motivation and you don't want to get involved as much. Is that something you felt along the way at some point, you know, like uh, having your other co-founders running brands and maybe you selling yours or, or not at all? Yeah, no, I think I I, I would definitely say, uh, and I I mean I think that comes from the dynamic of you know for us it was a, a leadership team of three, is that that happened and and could happen because you know when you think about how you break up you know equity and compensation and commitment, um, the expectations game it's it's one of those things where it can lead to and 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 has very hard conversations, but that's. I think that's what's so essential. I think, you know, again, if I, if I look back and I think, what, what have I, what have I learned and what lessons can I, can I take? And we talk about this openly now, it's just, how do, how do we align those expectations that much earlier and have those candid conversations? Because, um, that expectations mismatch can lead the company down the wrong way. It can really frustrate, you know, those people that are involved. Um, and so, yeah, for, for, for us. And then I think it's also just a patience and understanding. I think, you know, if, if we were running different businesses, I think even that would probably create an, another and unique dynamic, but because we're all in the FBA space and, and working with FBA brands, I, I think for me, I sort of had an understanding of, man, this is, this is kind of a, this is a volatile, you know, marketplace you're selling in. It's really tough. And so I, I tried to operate with that understanding of, okay, if, if this is going to pull away from your commitment to uh, seller tools, view it optimistically as temporary, but then okay. have those conversations of, you know, what, uh, what I also expect too. Okay. And um, what was like for you, like, cause obviously you built a tool uh, to help um, Amazon sellers. So how exactly did you acquire your first customers? What was the strategies that has been uh, working well overall? Yeah, in the, in the very early days, it was extremely organic. So, I mean, we, we were at events and and masterminds, and between um, between my team, um, that really the the team at the time, we were able to to onboard a lot of really great um, substantiated sellers fairly early on uh, with some of the things that we already had kind of day one. Uh, which at that point in time was really data focused. We had we were tapping into Amazon search volume, so we could give data at the keyword level to sort of say, "Hey, these are more important keywords to go after. Think about using them in your optimization uh, efforts in in this fashion." 
And so it was very organic. It was kind of community first. We didn't have to do any, you know, we didn't have to run any paid strategies or do much outreach. It was very organic. And did, did you also build your own community or was it mainly like, okay, I'm going to go to this, I don't know, like mastermind or Facebook groups and just try to connect with people as much as I can so I can down the line, like explain what I'm doing, bring value and potentially like uh, have them as customers? Or uh, did you say, okay, like we know that it's highly competitive. Let's create our own community and group and uh, start having more and more people join and try to build like a, a strong brand for seller tools. Yeah, and in the fairly early days, we did put together uh, and still run right now a, a Facebook group where we can um, more easily sort of engage with the with the community. And we've done some testing as well of like beta features and dedicated Facebook groups. Um, but that has been a that has been a good a good foundation, a part of our strategy as well of just having a um, a place where the community can kind of go have have the open conversation, share releases. Um, any iterations, anything that we change to that we can more easily, easily voice that. It, it doesn't hurt when you can do that in, you know, 20 seconds, share that message and um, get that reach out there. And uh, as you grew, what uh, did you kind of like change or switch strategy or try different acquisition channels? Yeah, we have, we have. Um, some of the more tried and true um, methods have been a lot of our outreach to work with um, course and content creators that tends to be a lot of ways that um, whether it's sort of the foundational knowledge or for first time sellers and brands, that's where they seek out that, that foundational knowledge. So we've done a, a lot with partners and affiliates and other strategic partners. And that's been one of our most fruitful sort of acquisition strategies. That's really interesting. I feel like in this field, especially with uh, Amazon buyers, there is a lot of, um, I mean, affiliation is, is really part of the game because on their end, they also do it a lot to promote their product with uh, bloggers, influencers, etc. So can you walk us through a little bit about uh, kind of the process? So where do you find these, uh, these courses? How do you get in touch with uh, the person owning the course? And what type of deal do you make with them? So they recommend your tool and in exchange, like uh, get potentially ref share or just for free. Yeah, it's a great question. And I mean, thinking about it now, I feel like we're so ingrained in the community that we we don't do a lot of let's say cold outreach or um you know ha having to spend too much time on on linkedin or or elsewhere um event attendance is huge event speaking has been huge for us to create a really a a foothold i, I would say in the community and then uh for us it's making sure that we're just engaging with those other speakers of other sponsors um and and taking part in those events and so you know, when we approach them, we really try to figure out ways that we can add value to the community. So we'll do blog shares, we'll do shared webinars. We'll try, we'll try to lead with that first instead of a cold pitch of, hey, you know, we'll give you, you know, here's a 20% discount. Okay. You know, <laughs> we, we try not to, we, we, we play the longer game um, when we have those types of, those types of conversations. Absolutely still do that to where we want to make sure that the value that they're sharing is quite obvious and it's compelling. Um, what we feature and release. But one of the other really big things that's unique about us is that both our platform and our Chrome extension, you can use uh, features completely for free. And so we almost kind of remove um, the financial aspect out of the equation because as an example, with our Chrome extension, it has features you can't get anywhere else. And because we're offering that for free, the, the barrier is so low that that person that, hey, I'm 
cobbling money together. I'm thinking about starting an FBA brand. We can capture them, get them excited, get them interested, deliver them some value. And if that's shared through a, a course or content creator, you know, they're more apt to continue to consume their content. And we can really, really uh, cultivate from there, kind of building up what are the solutions that you do, you need? Or if you find out through our Chrome extension, hey, you're missing this, well, then the app and the platform can help you address that issue. That's really interesting. So if I understand correctly, you try to keep what you started with as a strategy, which is meeting your customers, so spending time with, their, with them, sorry, whether it's at conferences, masterminds, Facebook groups. Once you find people who are actually running courses, you try to build relationships, so organize webinars, um, do events together, try to bring as much value as possible. And down the line, because you have like a, a freemium product, uh, you try to basically capture their audience at the same time through the freemium. So down the line, you might be able to upsell them to a paid plan. Is that correct? Or Yeah, no, and I think that's a good way of thinking about the funnel too, is that you have the, uh, the awareness through that content collaboration. Then we have further down as we're thinking about conversion readiness, we have free features to where, unless you just can't find the 10 minutes, you have really no excuse to at least not try it out and see what we're able to, to do. And then because of, you know, we, we try to do other little CRO adjustments and make sure that we are, we're ready to realize that lead is a conversion, but that's really the flow, um, the ideal flow for lead gen. And I'm curious about the numbers because uh, for a lot of premium model, like uh, I was chatting with, um, maybe you know him, Tim Solo from Ahrefs. So um, they, they do a lot of SEO, uh, 100 million plus uh, dollar ARR company. So, um, you know, like what they've been doing is that they're, essentially their free tools is really to get more backlinks, gain in domain authority, etc. But the upsell is not that great. So usually like uh, you have just people coming for the free things and because it's free, they don't always see the value and down the line, you know, like they, they don't want to upsell. Um, do you find it like um, useful as an upsell or more as a brand strategy? Um, I would I would say the way that we have it as it stands today is it, it really serves as a solid upsell. Um, okay. Because the the at the Chrome extension example, we will literally tell you where, hey, these keywords, you're not using enough keywords, you're not using, um, you're not performing well for those keywords. We can identify that and then the platform will help you, hey, do you need to run new keyword research? Do you need to identify top competitors? So it becomes very cyclical. And that's that's sort of the intention of the workflow is what's missing, then how do you how do you address it? And then it becomes a you know, weekly, bi-weekly check of making sure your performance is optimal. Nice. And um, something else I'm curious is you're targeting, um, so brands on Amazon, which means that they are SMBs. We know that a lot of brands on Amazon and also SMBs or startups run out of business. So I'm curious, like, is churn an issue for you as uh, most people targeting SMBs or have you found ways to kind of like reduce it or focus on a segment that kind of like don't churn because it's those evergreen Amazon businesses that are out there. Yeah. And I mean, our, our customer, our user base is extremely varied because we have, we have that, you know, first time business owner looking at the FBA opportunity and then they're using, you know, wanting to use our tools for an advantage. And then we have the enterprise clients, the aggregators who are also using 
tools and they're managing, you know, four dozen brands and they're thinking, okay, how do you automate these, you know, these, these brands that we're trying to scale to uh, such heights. So we have a very, um, very scattered, uh, scattered customer segments. And in all honesty, who we are in the process of serving better is that brand new uh, customer and user. In the competitive landscape uh, right now for Amazon SaaS, this is actually where a lot of tools do a really great job and what I call step one. They can do step one really well. They can help you find a product opportunity, you know, be able to point at what product you're going to source. But where we do really well and where they tend to fall short is steps two through 10 is that, okay, now that I have a product, what am I doing unique or exceptional to ensure it's optimized, ensure it's visible, drive ranking, capture more reviews. And that's really where our skill set lies. But there is this dynamic of once, once you've earned a customer at step one, they're indoctrinated, very hard to pull them away from, uh, from other um, solutions or tools in that sense. So with that dynamic and to your question in terms of, of churn, I don't think we see it in the same way that those step one type solutions do just by virtue of you know, if somebody's running their business, but just clicking a few buttons, that's not, that's not really building and starting a business. That's sort of vetting a potential business opportunity. So for us, um, it's manageable churn, but it's also the dynamic of as you get further down that segment, you do still have brands that are struggling, especially with the things that we're seeing today of supply chain issues, raw material shortages, um, Amazon inventory limits. I mean, brands are really coming up against a lot of challenges to where then they look at what are my expenses? What are my overhead? What can I, what can I pause? What can I halt? And sometimes, you know, SaaS solutions do, we'll, we'll get that. We'll see that in our trend insights as well of, I'm going to pause until start of the year, give me another month. So, you know, we, we sometimes fall prey to just the macro trends uh, yeah. when it comes to our users. And you, you, it's interesting because you know very well like the, the overall industry and the brands. And it's sometimes, you know, we see like uh, founders really focusing solely on their features and not really on the industry or the people they are serving, which is definitely not your case. And it comes down to another question I have. You were mentioning the, the supply chain issue we see in the US. So I'm curious, is it something that you would write content about so your users could find like valuable information into it. And even if it's not related to your product directly, at least, you know, they see you or as, a, as an expert, as someone they can trust. Is it a strategy that you've done on other topics that are not like directly related to your business, maybe more uh, top up funnel, but that would interest your audience? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And we do try to try to be mindful of that. Anytime we engage partners for content of what's really timely, what challenges are our brands facing right now that we can really turn around the most relevant piece of content? Um, and so that's, that is a big one is that now, you know, with, with supply chain brands thinking about global expansion. So they're trying to broaden their footprint, how they can, you know, impact other marketplaces. So that, that is a big part of what feeds into what, what our funnel, the, the subject matter and the content actually looks like. Awesome. And, um, to, to go back because we, we started talking a bit about churn and uh, when comes churn usually comes like uh, all the ups and downs uh, of a business, whether it's with your co-founders or with the business itself. What would you say were the like top three hardest moments you faced in the last uh, in the last years? 
Oh yeah, this is a great question. Um, I, I would I would say as a mainstay challenge, something that's pretty evergreen is Amazon changes because our mm -hmm. our you can see where our business has changed right alongside that from our feature set to you know as we touched on content, so like what our our team focuses on to deliver to the community. Um, so I would say that has been um, that has been huge. Oh man! Did you ever feel like uh, you would run out of business based on one of Amazon changes, or you always found the solution to keep going? I think our team has always done a great job of being very resourceful, um, and I think not only in terms of just just that as a skill of being able to see, okay, the the you know the the table has changed. How are we going to pivot from this? Um, so and the ability and willingness to do that. But then I think the the sophistication of knowing this space had, had served us as well. Of like, oh well, if this isn't going to be an option, if if all of a sudden, you know, we've been utilizing Amazon search volume and now that's gone, okay, well, what does that ultimately? Uh, what can that look like? How can we still capture what demand is in the marketplace at the keyword level? You know, just as a specific example. Um, so yeah, it's not to say that you know we don't feel like you know, um, everything's on fire and <laughs> things have changed drastically all of a sudden. Um, but I think it's a credit to, uh, to the team to be able to take that information and say, okay, well then what, do, what do we want to do next? How can we sort of pivot from here? Okay. And any other like, uh, challenges that you faced, whether it's with your co-founders or uh, with the team? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think our, the prior point of the focus of leadership is, um, is definitely something that uh, can continue to creep up because you know, especially for us to be specific to our case, there is still a really great opportunity if you know what you're doing in the FBA space and you can build a substantial brand and you have a you have a moat. You're taking advantage of uh, some amount of blue ocean in your strategy. Um, there are excellent opportunities and great returns to be realized. So you sort of have to turn down a pretty good thing to be able to rededicate and refocus, um, for, um, and again, in our case for, for a SAS. So I wouldn't say that's a challenge. It's more of a, a, a um, continuous discussion and yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always, a, it's a realignment, I would say. Um, because those two things, when they, when it happens at the same time where something maybe only impacts the SAS side, and then you see the potential of the brand building side, It, it it looks a lot more compelling uh, as an alternative or another uh, another option. So, um, yeah, I would say that as well. And then maybe the last thing is is really just um, team building of being able to uh, scale the team and the resources based on um, what priorities uh, look like, what the vision looks like, and then the practical implementation. You can see where none of these things are isolated. It's sort of like this constant interplay of you know, okay, Amazon's changed. Well, then this expertise is more, you know, more fruitful. It's maybe not as much of a data orientation. It's more of a, you know, optimization um, type of strategy. So I would probably put those as the big three. Um, we'll, we'll still call them challenges, the, the things to, to kind of constantly look at and address. And, and did you feel like, um, to me personally, like uh, as a first time SaaS founder, it was very challenging like to, um, to hire uh, the right team and make sure that people, you know, like uh, fit in the long run, especially, you know, when you get started, uh, it's difficult to attract talent in the early days. 
So you try to get people, you know, who are extremely motivated, who have a lot of grind and then can, uh, that you can help leveling up. How was your like hiring strategy? Did you struggle to find the right ones? Uh, did you have to fire people and how did it go? Yeah, no, I, I think, um, we did, we did sort of have to fail our way through, um, what, what worked for us in terms of hiring. Fortunately, we didn't have to, um, other than a, a few consultants, we didn't have to fire anybody that made up the, the team. So we avoided, um, some of the bigger missteps, um, nice. but what was crucial for us I didn't. Was, yeah, good. good, good. <laughs> That's never fun. That's never a fun. No, no, it's, yeah, it's always, always a hard time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we, we, we were fortunate in that sense of, um, you know, being able to, um, being able to in the early enough phases, and, and this is the core team members that are still with us to this day, which I think for a SaaS and a technical solution, I consider that a big win is because for the same reason, there's plenty of opportunity out there for, uh, for really great people to find, um, new opportunities. Um, and so with them sticking with us and I can, you know, I can think of team members that were sort of like the, the big, we'll call them force multipliers. Somebody's really great. That really fits the culture that drives the culture that has true ownership of what they are, uh, what they're doing and how they're impacting the business and then letting them sort of be the centerpiece from which the, the sort of the spokes, um, uh, come about and how we build out the team that was uh, hugely advantageous for us. So that's been, that's been a little bit of our stories, really strong core team, really key specific hires, and then having them drive and, and their, um, their voice and in many ways, their leadership, um, mold more of the team, more of the processes, the SOPs, um, and real ownership there. Yeah. I feel like you've, um, you've managed, but I'm guessing you, you had uh, a few uh, more experience, you know, in hiring like, uh, people with maybe like a bit more experience that could become like, uh, as you say, driving force or a players. And I think it's, I think it's the smartest move. If I had like to, to redo things, I think I would hire like people who have uh, a bit more experience in the early days because it's true that one person can change a lot of things. And, uh, and if you have the right team, like it, uh, it changes everything. Like, uh, for us, um, I would say that one of the struggle down the line was we, we hired also too fast. So, um, we had a really, really strong core team and we hired people because, uh, you know, like with the hyper growth, you're like, okay, we need to hire more. Um, and down the line, you realize that actually for SaaS businesses, not always the case. Uh, you you don't have to hire as many people as you're scaling uh, and that uh, the people do really matter and you talked about culture so i'm curious to to know also like uh, how exactly do you align your hiring process with your existing culture yeah it's i think it's a great question um i i think it really informs um what the what the vetting process looks like for not only defining uh what what people and roles, um, what roles need to be effectively filled. So we make sure that there is sort of a, a alignment and the puzzle piece is fitting. Um, but then the ownership through that process and making sure that, um, at least too, for us as a leadership that we're engaged where there is, you know, additional interviews we want to see, we want to meet the people, we want to find out a little bit more about them and not just simply look at a, a, a skill set. Um, necessarily. So, you know, we're a big fan and, and this is, you know, post kind of a more post COVID environment. 
Um, but we're a big fan of having our team, you know, go out to dinners, go meet these people and spend some time with them before we make that commitment and they make that investment in, uh, in joining us as a, as a team. And so fortunately our team is now able to start meeting more in person. Uh, we actually just had a big event, um, about two weeks ago, uh, uh, getting them together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and we, we're looking forward to, to more of that. That's one of the tricky things of, you know, building culture in a purely remote and now sort of, um, I'll, I'll call it just more post-pandemic environment, but where when you lose that human to human, um, contact, or it's not as, um, it's not as easy that, uh, you know, over communicating and figuring out ways to, to, um, add some personality and add some, a little bit of fun, uh, to what you're doing is, is, is huge for, um, even the day to day, you know, when people are just showing up and ready to do their, do their work. So if I understand correctly, you're all in the same city right now, or, uh, do, did people like kind of move around with, uh, with COVID? Yeah. So we're pretty, we're pretty decentralized at the, at, uh, at, at today. Um, cause myself, I'm, uh, situated in Orlando, Florida, fully remote. And, um, I've got, uh, one business partner in Puerto Rico. Another is in, uh, Slovenia where a bulk of our development team is located. So he's, there with them on site. We have an office, uh, in Ljubljana. Um, nice. which, yeah. So, um, so yeah, a, a bulk of our team is there. And then we've got folks in California, Philippines, um, yeah, a little bit all over the, all over the world and, and a remote <laughs> team. So that's why it was really yeah. good to get them together. Um, to yeah, spend a little cool. time. Yeah. That, that's also something we, we try to do, um, at least twice a year. Cause we have people like we have an office in Paris, but we have like, a people a bit like everywhere um we've also used uh, a virtual office uh, it's called lemverse which is basically like during the day we're all there it looks like a, a pokemon character and you can move around in the office and go have a chat with people through videos it's uh it's quite cool it's not uh, as good i would say as being in the office but you kind of have the the same vibe <laughs> no that sounds awesome <laughs> <laughs> and um did you did you face like uh, other like um, kind of challenges with uh, with your co-founders down the line apart from potentially like the this um, I would say like uh, alignment on focus was it difficult for you to kind of uh, set the the vision for the company and the milestones to to reach? Yeah, I think I think over time a few things that we learned was really defining what our um, strengths were to more clearly also define our roles. Um, you know, in the early days it was, you know, we're sellers, we know our stuff, like we're just, we're just creating things that we know we want and in part, then the community is going to just embrace it, uh, which was true. But then, you know, as you get two, three, four, five years into, into the business and you develop more robust tools that need more management and oversight, um, it then becomes a question of, okay, who, whose efforts how can we make your efforts as fruitful as possible and do so by segmenting and clarifying some of your, some of your roles. Um, and so, you know, for me, um, I really oversee a lot of the operational and marketing side of things. And it was, um, also looking at, um, Brennan, our, our co-founder who, um, who really, uh, I would say is, is the, the de facto CEO and all, uh, honestly, we sort of run by committee, uh, across the three of us. Um, and for uh, what he was sort of overseeing, 
it made a lot of sense to somebody who's very technically sophisticated. You know, he's building a second eight-figure brand, absolutely knows the space, um, understands exactly what he wants and would want in, in his own businesses, of letting him be able to really drive a lot of the... Um, uh, really the, 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 both the UX and the wireframing and the ideation and saying, okay, wouldn't it be cool if, and kind of giving him a pen and pad to really uh, drive what that, what that can look like. And that really does, then informs, uh, and we have a workflow for this in terms of uh, some of the tools we use and how it ends up in, in Jira and some of our other tools. Um, but that wasn't, that wasn't day one. Day one is, it wasn't so clear of like, you know, we, we know who's driving some of the ideation and the brainstorming, who's then focusing on the development. Do we have a clear sort of product life cycle? Um, and so I think that's a, that's a really interesting dynamic that I think in some ways has to happen um, a little bit over time because I can see how it served yeah. us. But it, I, I would also say if, if you can sort of sort out where, where do your skills um create the biggest impact if there's some ambiguity as it was with our case we just were sellers that knew the space um of really trying to be cognizant of that as things move move forward in the business that's uh that's awesome yeah i do agree with you i think like some things need to take time like it's uh it can't be determined and it might evolve over time also like uh, you never know how people can or might discover like a new passion or something they excel at and you want them to also focusing on that part. So I think it's a constant communication that helps the founding team to kind of evolve and also set the, the new dimension and the foundation for the business. Um, I want to be cautious of your time. So we're going to end up with uh, kind of like three flash questions. Um, the first one is, uh, what's your favorite uh, book or podcast? Oh, man. Yeah, this, uh, this question. Um, I have to be honest, my favorite podcast right now, it's actually a uh, cryptocurrency uh, focused podcast called Bankless. Um, <laughs> nice. I want to yes. check it out. I'm super interested <laughs> in crypto right now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, in the in the context of our topic, I think there's so many smart, innovative people looking at really unique solutions that there is, there's a ton to learn from that um, to where you don't have to just think, oh, I mean, it's the, the crypto opportunity. But um I think again. I think of that for first first time founders of like, there's a lot of people doing things that were unthinkable, um, that were um, that are truly unique and fresh ideas. And I think there's so much that you can you can pull from that. But that's definitely one I've been I've been enjoying. Nice. Can you get us the name again? It's a bankless. Bankless. Okay. Cool. I'll definitely check this out. Um, who's your favorite uh, bootstrap founder and why? Um, I would have to go with the, the, the guys at Basecamp, Jason Freed and, um, DHH. Those, those are probably my, my favorite. Um, and I would probably bring this back in terms of favorite book. Rework is, is definitely my favorite book. Um, it's one I come back to a lot. It's just unconventional kind of outside the box thinking, uh, when it comes to, um, work and thought process and philosophy, um, but I think, yeah, I think they constantly share, you know, if, you know, if I keep a kind of a tabs on what he shares via LinkedIn, um, just, just sort of ha helps you to sort of shake up some of the mental minutia. If you think things have to be done this way, or this is how it's always been done. I think they do a great job of doing the opposite of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, as we say that, uh, at Lempire, it's uh, do things that you shouldn't. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm actually curious. I know I said like three flash questions, but uh, we you mentioned, you know, like there were tons of new VC money coming in on uh, Amazon brands. Is it something that uh, you're considering also for the future, like to maybe like raise or are you like just a hardcore bootstrapper that want to keep it that way for uh, the, the next 10 years? We'll, we'll have to see. I think... Um We're we're having I would say more interesting conversations because I think I think it would be um, I think it's important um, in our space to to entertain larger conversations and be willing to kind of collaborate. So that's that's one of the unique folds for us right now. Um, and I think um, yeah, I think I think there's just so much so much possibility. There's a lot of hardship, a lot of challenges, but like that that's such Some a cool opportunities. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And uh, the final flash questions to end up on time. Uh, what's uh, your favorite occupation or thing to do in order to regain motivation and energy during hard times? Yeah, I mean, I, for for me, um, I really like to step away and do something that is um, that is just completely separate from work. You know, I like to I like to play guitar. I like to put pen to pad. I like to do things that are sort of technically removed get away from get away from screens a little bit and that lets me sort of free up my mind a little bit to um yeah to not to not overly stress or ruminate on uh on the day-to-day -day. so it's nothing complicated but i think um we tend to be we, we tend to be so uh you know something i reflect on a lot we're so input driven whether it's listening to music or listening to podcasts or viewing screens or watching tv that I think, uh, I think that stepping away can, um, free your brain. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, free up the, uh, free up the stimulation a little bit. And then you, you know, it's that, that whole idea and that adage of you have the best ideas in the shower. And I, I think that's, that's, um, that's not only true, that's, that's something we sort of have to reflect on. Why, why is that? Why is it when I'm not connected and stimulated that I have my best ideas? That's uh, that's a really good question and uh, good final words. Thanks a lot, Troy, for uh, really like sharing with us all your learnings and stories along the way. If people want to get in touch or follow your journey, where can they go? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, feel free to find me and the team. We're at seller.tools, uh, where you can find our website and our app. And then reach out to us at hello at seller.tools. Uh, we'd love to, to hear from you if you have any questions or ways we can support you. Let us know. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Troy. Have an amazing day. Take care. Thank you. You too. Well, thanks, Troy. I think it was a, a really cool chat. I uh, appreciate like uh, the fact that you were like really transparent. I think it's going to be super beneficial uh, for our audience. Thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Stories, the only podcast where bootstrap entrepreneurs share their journey in all transparency. If you enjoyed this episode, don't hesitate to leave us a review. And in case you want to see the interview, all episodes are live on the Guillaume Moubesh YouTube channel. Check out the link in the description and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Have an amazing day and make sure to also join us in our amazing Bootstrap community where we all helped each other to become successful successful and grow a profitable business. Take care and talk to you soon.